The Mishnahis continue to discuss situations where somebody dies and he does not leave enough money behind to provide for all of the kasubas of all of his wives. Somebody who was married to four women, Vomais, and then he died. And the amount of money which he left behind was not enough to pay for the kasubas of all of his wives. Says the Mishnah, just like we saw at the beginning of the parak, the woman who was married first and whose kasubah was written first, she takes precedence over the second woman, the one who was married and whose kasubah was written later. So the first one would take all of the amount of her kasubah, and only if there's left over would the next one have any rights to any of the money. The second one has precedence over the third one, and the third one has precedence over the fourth one. Now because the women who were married earlier take precedence, and by them taking the money, they are potentially stopping the next woman in line from receiving her kasuba. So the next woman in line has the right to make the first woman make a shavua. She can make her swear that she hasn't yet received any of her kasuba before she takes her kasuba. And so it would emerge that the first woman who takes her kasuba makes a shavua. She swears to the next woman in line, the woman who was writ- whose kasuba was written second, she swears to her that she has not yet received her kasuba, and then she can take her full kasuba. The second woman swears to the third woman before she takes her kasuba, and the third woman swears to the fourth woman before she takes her kasuba. However, when it comes to the last woman in line, the fourth woman, she can collect her kasuba without making any shavua, which is the regular halacha, and over here there's nobody else who she is preventing from getting their kasuba, because she's the last one in line. And let's assume that there are no other inheritors who are in line to receive his inheritance. So in such a case, she, should, she could take her kasuba without making any shavua. says, Because she's the last one in line, she should gain also, the last one in line cannot take her ksuba without making a shavua. Now, in a general case, Bananos agrees. The Gemara explains that Bananos is talking about a specific situation where before the fourth one takes her ksuba, one of the other women who has already taken her ksuba, so let's say the first woman, she took one of the fields which her husband left behind, and after she took it, she found out that actually that was a stolen field. Either her husband stole it, or it reached him somehow, he bought it from somebody else who stole it, and so she is concerned that it might end up being that in the future, this field will be taken away from her. Now, if that field were to be taken away from her after the fourth woman took her ksuba already, then according to Ben-Nanos, the first woman would not have the right to take her kasuba from the money or the field which the fourth woman took because she has already taken it. She only takes precedence before anybody has collected their kasuba. But once the fourth woman has collected her kasuba already, if the first woman's kasuba gets taken away from her, it is too late and she cannot take the money or the field which the fourth woman took. And because of that, the first woman has the right to make the fourth woman swear because the fourth woman taking a kasuba is potentially depriving the first woman from a kasuba if it emerges that she needs to take a kasuba again. However, according to the Tanakama, if the first woman's kasuba is taken away, then she is able to take away the kasuba of the fourth woman even once she has collected it. And therefore, by the fourth woman collecting the kasuba, there's no chance that she is stopping the first woman from getting something. Because the first woman has the full right to take it away from the fourth woman. And because of that, the first woman cannot make the fourth woman swear before taking the kasuba. Because one can only make them swear if they might lose out by that person taking the kasuba first.
Alright, continues the nation. If all of the women who were married, their kasuba was written on the same day. So if only the date was written, then we don't know whose kasuba was written first, and they would all have an equal claim to the kasuba, so it would be split. However, if the time of the day was also written on the kasuba, then anybody who came before, whose kasuba was written before the next one, even by one hour, Zochsa, she gains and she would have precedence over the other woman. And indeed, says the Mishnah, in Yerushalayim, the custom was to write down the hour on the kasuba as well as the date. But as we said, if they all were written in the same hour, meaning it is not apparent from the time on the kasuba whose was written first, or if they didn't write at all the hour, the time, if there is only 100 zuz there, which is not enough for all of their kasubas, they should split the inheritance equally. As we have seen, when a man obligates himself to pay the kasuba to his wife at the beginning of the marriage, so all of his property which he has then, there is a nechosim attached to that property. And that means that even if he sells the property, if he dies or divorces her and hasn't got any other money, she would be able to collect her kasuba from that field, even once it has been sold to somebody else. Misha and also Ishtenoshim, somebody who is married to two women, Umochar Sodehu, and the husband sold his field after the marriage, and the first woman wrote or told the person who bought the field that I have no judgment or any claim with you, meaning she is relinquishing her rights to the Achrayis Nechosim, and she is declaring that she will not be able to snatch that property back from the buyer. Now she only told this, and she only made this declaration to the buyer. And so when the husband dies, Hashaniah, the second woman who didn't make any declaration, she can take that field from the buyer as her kasuba. Now once she takes that, she takes ownership of that field, the first woman is able to snatch that field away from the second woman. Because as we saw in the previous Mishnah, the first woman, the woman whose kasuba was written first, has more rights to the kasuba than the second woman. So now that the second woman has the field, the first woman has the rights to snatch it back from her, because she didn't make any declaration relinquishing her rights from the second woman. So she still has precedence over the second woman. However, once the first woman now has taken ownership of the field, the man who bought the field from the husband can now take the field away from the first woman because of the declaration which the first woman made. The is and this cycle goes round and round until they reach a compromise between them. And what that basically means is that they're going to have to split the field between them. The exact same thing would apply to somebody who was owed money. Let's say he let, Ruven lent money to Shimon, and then Shimon t- sold two of his fields, and Ruven, who has a chayis nechosim on the fields, he declared to one of the buyers that he's not going to have any right over there. He declared it to the one who bought the field second. He told him that I'm not going to have any chayis nechosim on your field as long as you have it. So when it comes to him collecting the loan, and Shimon doesn't have money to pay back, Ruven would collect the field from the one who bought it first, because he made no declaration towards him. However, once Ruben has it, now the second one who bought the field, he can take it away from the from Ruben, because Ruben made a declaration towards him. And once he takes it, then the one who bought the field first, he has precedence over the one who bought the field second, so he can take it away from him. 
And the cycle continues until they reach a compromise and split it. And the same applies to a woman who is owed money, and that's referring to the Ksuba. And this is a very similar case to the previous two cases. Just in this case, he was married to only one woman, but he sold two fields to two people. So she declared to the one who bought the field second that she has, she has no claim against him. And again, the cycle continues until they reach a compromise. We learned at the end of the fourth parak that one of the conditions written inside of the Kasuba is that once the man dies, the widow can be supported from the property which he leaves behind until she manages to remarry another man. And indeed the Mishnah says that a widow is fed and supported from the property of the inheritors, the orphans, as per the condition of the Kasuba. Now, in a regular marriage, the halacha is, as we saw earlier on in the pair in the Masechta, that in return for the obligation of the husband to support his wife, he has the right to all of her maiseodayim. Anything which she makes and earns goes to him in return for his support, and therefore, since in this case, it's his inheritors who are supporting her, maiseodayim shalahen, her maiseodayim would go to them. Now, another one of the obligations of a regular husband is that once his wife dies, if she dies before him, he is obligated to provide for her burial. And in return for this, anything which she leaves behind, he inherits. Now, in this case, once the husband died first, and she's being supported by the orphans. If she dies, then her inheritors receive her right to the kasuba and they can collect her kasuba. Which means that the husband's inheritors, the orphans, will not inherit her. And because of that, they are not obligated to provide for her burial since they are not inheriting her. Rather, her inheritors who inherit the kasuba, they would be obligated to provide for her burial. Now, the Gemara actually learns from this double wording, her inheritors, the ones who are inheriting the kasuba. The Gemara implies from here that we are talking about a situation where two different groups of people will inherit this woman. Her kasuba will be inherited by one group of people, and her other property will be inherited by another group of people. And the only situation where this is found is regarding a Shomeris Yovam, a woman whose husband dies without children, so she is awaiting Yibum, which is the mitzvah of marrying the man's brother, but then she dies, so the question is, who inherits her? And we learn to the Mishnah in Perak Ches that her inheritance is split between the Yovam, the brother who was supposed to perform Yibum, and her own inheritance, her own family. So the Mishnah is telling us that in such a case, it's specifically the ones who inherit her kasuba, namely the Yovam, he would be the one who is obligated to inherit, to bury her. Mr. Bates, that which we learned in the previous Mishnah, that a widow is supported by the inheritance left behind by her husband, only applies after Nisuin, after they were fully married. But if her husband died only after the Erisin, before they managed to do Nisuin together, the marriage wasn't yet completed. In that case, she would not be supported by his inheritance. And the reason is very simple, because the husband himself, even during his lifetime, wasn't yet obligated to support her. The obligation for the husband to support her only begins from the Nisuin. So all the more so, she has no right to be supported by that which he leaves behind if they never reach the Nisuin. But in either case, of course, the, the woman does have the right to her Kasuba. Almona, a widow, Bemina Erosin, Bemina Nisuin, whether she is a widow from Erosin or Nisuin, so whether she doesn't or does have the right to be supported from that which her husband leaves behind, she may sell her husband's property, not in front of a base den, in order to receive that value as her kasuba. 
Gamora explains she does require three people who are experts in evaluating the value of the land, the value of the property, but she does not require a real beast in. There is an assumption that one's husband would not want his wife to have to appear in court after his death in order to receive the kasuba. It's considered degrading, and because of that assumption that that's not what the husband would, would, would have wanted, she may sell that land, even not in front of a basin. Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon says, it depends, Minana Suin, if she was widowed from being fully married, then she can sell it without the basin. And the reason is because if she was widowed from the Nisuin, then she's not necessarily selling the land or the property in order to collect her kasuba. She has the rights to be supported by the land. And it could be that perhaps the orphans haven't yet started supporting her. So in order to receive her support, she goes ahead and sells that property. So in this case, since she's still entitled to her kasuba in the future, and she might need to sell it again in the future for more food. So she would end up needing to go to Basin multiple times. So in that situation, says Rishimon, I agree that her husband would not have wanted that to happen. However, you know, Erisin, if she was widowed from Erisin, and therefore she's only selling it for the sake of her kasuba, so she'll only have to go once. In general, one collects their entire kasuba in one go. But it's not considered to be so degrading to go to the Basin once. No, Timka Elba Basin, she can only sell the property in a Basin in order to make absolute sure she doesn't sell it for less than its real value. And the reason why she has to do this in base then is because she has no right to being supported now. And anybody who is not entitled to be supported, like Tim then she may only sell her husband's property in front of a base then in order that she doesn't sell it for any less than it's really worth. Because in this case, there is no assumption that the husband was not, would not have wanted her to have to go to base then since it's a one-off occurrence.